Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host for today, Brent J. Cohen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, for today's show, we wanted to focus in on one of the major news stories from the last week. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration announced a new rule intended to overturn the Flores Settlement of 1997. Uh, and for those of you who may be less familiar with the Flores Settlement, this is the rule that says, among other things, you can't hold children indefinitely uh, in detention camps, in cages, and you must treat children humanely uh, and families, including things like bare necessities of soap and toothpaste, uh, which this administration has um, fought against, if you can believe it. Uh, and so, yeah. And so this, uh, this new rule would... Uh, would allow children and families to be held for the entire duration of the immigration proceedings, which in other words is really indefinite confinement of children in detention camps. Uh, and cruel rules like this have become the norm in this administration. Uh, just the past few months we've seen, and, and really throughout the course of this administration, we've seen this administration target just about every aspect or every avenue of immigration, uh, making efforts to end DACA, making efforts to end temporary protective status or TPS, uh, for immigrants from Sudan, El Salvador, Haiti, Nepal, and Nicaragua, uh, redistricting, excuse me, restricting the ability for people to request asylum. Of course, requesting asylum is a legal pathway into the United States. Um, and propose, proposing a new public charge rule, which uh, is designed to restrict legal immigration from certain countries, essentially saying if you've ever taken any form of government assistance, your likelihood of getting legal citizenship uh, going through this legal process that so often this administration claims to love and say, we just want people to get online, except they're trying to cut off ways to get online. Uh, and so that has just been within the last few months. Uh, and, and with this most recent rule, the administration has said really quite clearly, Ken Cuccinelli being perhaps the most vocal and worst spokesperson on this issue, uh, that they view indefinite detention of children as a deterrent mechanism. This is a political strategy employ, they say, to uh, help deter families from making the journey to the United States. So they are proposing the torture of children uh, as a deterrent mechanism. 
Uh, and mind you, again, this this administration has argued in court that when kids, when children are in detention, they're not even entitled to things like soap and toothpaste and showers, even though the Flores settlement mandates that, that children receive these types of basic humanitarian care. Um, so as with this rule and so many others, the cruelty is the point. Um, I, I, I don't even know where to begin, but fortunately we have two guests joining us today who do know where to begin uh, to discuss this rule and its potential ramifications in much greater depth. Uh, we have Gina Green, the Chief Strategy Officer at Bend the Arc. Thanks for joining us, Gina. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Brent. Of course. And and we also have Katie Mertza, the Advocacy Coordinator for the Dilly Pro Bono Project. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, uh, Katie, I want to I want to jump right in with you. We know uh, many people have already heard, uh, thanks in part to the work that you and others do um, in detention camps, about the horror stories that people are dealing with right now, um, day in, day out. Uh, the fact that we have toddlers walking around with soiled pants and no diapers, that we have eight and nine and ten-year-olds taking care of one and two-year-olds who have been separated from their families, uh, that we have children who are sick and in worst cases, in fact, dying. Um, how Can you just share a bit more about the Dilly Pro Bono Project, the work that you do, and, and how it got started? Absolutely. Uh, so the Dilly Pro Bono Project provides legal services for asylum-seeking mothers and their children who are detained at the South Texas Family Residential Center in a small town called Dilly, Texas, about an hour and 15 minutes southwest of San Antonio. Um, mothers uh, and their children are transferred to this ICE detention center, um, which is run by the private prison corporation, CoreCivic, um, after they have experienced those border conditions that you explained, which are so horrendous. Um, they come to Dilly to prepare for um, their credible fear interviews, um, and we are providing them with legal services to get through these interviews so that they can be released, because right now they are um, normally detained for two to three weeks under that 20-day um, time, timeline, which is now under attack. Fortunately, we do get 99.5% of families released um, because of the legal services that our staff and volunteers are providing. Great, great. And so you're really working with folks um, directly and helping them uh, get out of these inhumane or, or this particular inhumane detention camp. Um, and and Gina, Ben the Ark uh, describes itself as a movement of tens of thousands of progressive Jews. Uh, and uh, you all have been vocal and active members of the Defund Hate campaign and in this work generally. Um, can you share a, a little bit more about the work that you do at Ben the Ark and um, what what the mission of your organization is and, and how it relates to this humanitarian crisis we're talking about today? Sure. Uh, the New York Jewish Action uh, is the only national Jewish organization focused exclusively on bringing about social change in the United States. And we have been doing this work for a number of years, and we're one of the most vocal organizations at the beginning of the Trump presidency, sounding the alarm of the danger that we felt like he would um, pose to this country, our people, and our democracy. And it's actually been really disheartening to find out exactly how right we were. Um, we are active members of the Defund Hate Coalition. Immigration is one of our key issues and has been for the last couple of years, along with anti-Muslim bigotry. Um, and what we're seeing right now, what is really interesting, is one of the other key issues that we work on in this moment um, has been the rise of white nationalism. And in a lot of ways, we're seeing 
the immigration policy, which has demonized and dehumanized immigrants to this country, that is actually what white nationalism looks like in policy and practice. And so our work with Defund Hate is to demand that Congress take action to fight back against this administration's cruel anti-immigrant agenda by cutting the funding of the agencies who implement it and carry out these atrocities. I think your point that you made earlier in the lead-in, Brent, that the point is cruelty, the point is dehumanization, the point is attacking immigrants and people of color, and um, that's what many Jewish Americans find unconscionable, and that's why we're in this fight with our immigrant partners. Yeah, thanks for that, Tina. And, and I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is um, Donald Trump told us who he was going to be, who he is, who he, he's shown us throughout throughout his lifetime. Uh, going back, I mean, you've got to be pretty bad to get sued for racial discrimination during the Nixon administration. Uh, and yet that's exactly what happened to Donald Trump when he was a, a landlord in New York City. Exactly. I mean, Maya Angelou says when someone shows you who they are, believe them, right? And we have known. And now we are, as a nation, uh, paying a price. And, you know, I talked to um, a reporter earlier this week, and she asked me, well, do you think that there's anything that Donald Trump can do to, like, fix this or, like, be better on immigration? I was like, actually, no, there isn't anything he can do because he is the problem. That's right. He he is the problem, and we saw that uh, front and center just a couple of weeks ago uh, when a uh, white supremacist, white nationalist, walked into a Walmart in El Paso with the intention of killing as many Latinx individuals as possible, fueled by the rhetoric of this administration, fueled by the rhetoric of Donald Trump uh, in his talk of invasions and invaders. Um, how How is this, and we have just, just about a minute left here before we hit break and then want to come back to it, but how has that rhetoric... Um, struck a chord with the Jewish community? It struck a chord because we've seen this before. We, The way the Jewish community has been attacked for thousands of years have had, you know, the, Trump's rhetoric has, 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 has been an echo of the same language that we've seen directed at us for centuries. Who's invading? What are we doing? What's the, like, the infestation? This is language of... Um, hundreds of years, and we are used to seeing it. We know what it means. We know what these um, dog whistles, and actually they're not really dog whistles because everyone can hear them, right? Like, the, the we know what it's like to be othered, and that's why we're in this fight. Yeah, yeah, and being othered, that unfortunately so often uh, then gives um, license to or, or, or leads into uh, hate-filled violence. Um, and we're seeing that whether it's through official policy or through uh, um, white supremacists picking up guns and taking things into their own hands. Uh, exactly. Both- I, I mean, you look at what happened in Pittsburgh and the shooter in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue, he didn't just shoot Jews. He shot Jews who were active in helping immigrants and refugees. Right, right. So this is the Generation Progress Takeover. We are talking about the most recent uh, cruel rule to come out of this Trump administration, and we'll be back right after this break. We know that acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Ken Cuccinelli was on NPR this morning. He was asked Mm -hmm. about this public charge rule. I want to play for you what he had to say. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? 
Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That that plaque was put on the Statue of Liberty at almost the same time as the first public charge law was passed. Very interesting timing. Although you mentioned the American dream is is built on this idea that this is a place where you can come and it's build a life. It. All right. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host, Brent J. Cohen. And that egregious clip was courtesy of Ken Cuccinelli, uh, the sort of latest horrible person to be brought into the Trump administration, of course, in an acting capacity. Uh, Katie, I, I want to um, come back to you, especially on the heels of that clip. You're working directly with people who are being detained and, and with the lawyers who are representing them. Uh, what has been the reaction um, from the folks that you work with and the folks that you work on behalf of, um, if at all, to this latest uh, Flores rule and the the just the the potential for you know keeping children and families indefinitely in 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 detention and you know and under circumstances I'm sure that if they had their druthers it would be even worse than than the status quo. In ending the Flores settlement, the Trump administration's new regulation would eliminate the few protections that detained immigrant children currently have. The consequences that we've already seen from family detention on the physical health, the emotional well-being, and the legal rights of children would be severely increased if the children were held in detention for months at a time throughout their whole case, um, like what is being proposed. Um, as I mentioned, children are currently detained um, normally for two or three weeks, and we see horrible consequences in that short time. Um, furthermore, under um, this new regulation, ICE could create their own standards for detention centers, while currently uh, the Flores settlement requires state licensing, even though the government have, hasn't followed that requirement up to this time, it would eliminate it with no external oversight. Um, the Department of Homeland Security has repeatedly shown themselves incapable of monitoring themselves. Um, we've seen a series of child deaths in custody. We've seen Inspector General reports this year about overcrowding um, and horrible conditions in Border Patrol processing centers. Um, and we've seen a recent lawsuit about inadequate medical care in ICE facilities. So everything we see now in family detention could become so much more dangerous for children with this regulation. Yeah, I want to I want to dig in on a couple of things that you mentioned there. Um, so first, the fact that these facilities would be uh, inadequately run or or subpar conditions shouldn't shock anybody um, who has any familiar familiarity with what large scale facilities do, whether it's in the immigration or criminal justice or juvenile justice context. Having spent nearly 10 years in in the juvenile justice and criminal justice field, I can tell you even the most brand new, pretty well-intentioned facility that has a hundred or more beds eventually becomes an awful big uh, facility with a hundred or more beds, right? It, it's like violence and, and abuse and subpar conditions is something that's just uh, ingrained and almost episodic within these facilities. And so it shouldn't be a shock that this type of of, of um, institution would, would contribute to uh, uh, these conditions. And that's with state oversight right right isn't there that a big distinction here between the current flores rule uh the current Flo- current flores settlement excuse me and the rule that this administration is proposing is that right now there needs to be state oversight and state licensing and this new rule wouldn't require that oversight 
That is currently a requirement. The government has never followed it in Dili. Um, the issues we see in Dili, um, one of the largest ones we see is the medical care. We see uh, families waiting in, uh, in long for hours and hours in long lines to get their child the medical care they need. We see desperate mothers asking over and over um, for medication only to have their child finally rush to the hospital 70 miles away to San Antonio by ambulance or helicopter. Um, we um, see families turned away saying it's emergency only hours when the child really is having a medical emergency. We see gaps in prescription medication that the families traveled with but um, were confiscated at the border. Um, we see failure to accommodate medical diets or certain conditions that children and the mothers have and we there are no specialists available in Dili so um, we have pregnant women and children with medical conditions um, without being able to access an OBGYN, a cardiologist, a physical therapist. And this is just one of the many reasons um, that we think there should be more oversight um, for any detention of children instead of less, which is what this regulation would propose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, you highlight, I think, something that's worth uh, uh, and important to zero in on in terms of uh, how women, and particularly women who uh, may be pregnant or young children, uh, are disproportionately impacted. Certainly not the only ones impacted, but that there can be acute impact here uh, through lack of medical care, uh, particularly for uh, women who may have, who may be pregnant or are otherwise vulnerable, um, because or other people who may be vulnerable, young children included, uh, from a medical perspective. Right. We normally see babies as young as one year old, and we saw some as young as six months old um, in the spring. Um, we see pregnant women um, at, with certain risk factors or complications um, who are begging to see an OBGYN and are afraid for their pregnancy. Um, and beyond the physical risk, we see severe mental health issues related to detention. Um, we see kids very quickly, um, even in with the current 20-day timeline, refusing to eat. Um, experiencing behavioral regression, so returning to behaviors that they previously outgrew, like wetting the bed, severe separation anxiety, insisting on being carried around, um, misbehaving when their mothers say that they've never been like this before, um, and the disruption in the role of the parental authority when there's a guard yelling at their mother with arbitrary rules and this institutional environment. environment um, confusing them about who's taking care of them and who's in control. Um, and we're afraid that with months of detention, all of these effects will be even more severe. And we saw this last year. There were 37 families who had been separated by the government, and when the court ordered them reunified, instead of being released, some were sent to Dili. And so these 37 families were in Dili for about four months, mm -hmm. and we saw the the effects that that type of long-term detention can have on a child um, in the same way that we saw that um, in 2014 and 2015 in uh, family detention um, before a court um, ordered that current 20-day right. timeline. So Katie, we're going to come back and hear more about what's happening in facilities and Gina, we're going to come back and talk more about the work that Ben the Ark are, and others are doing here uh, right after this break. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host, Brent J. Cohen. Uh, and we have, uh, we're talking today about uh, immigration and this, the Trump administration's most recent uh, uh, 
rule that they've proposed. Um, fortunately, it's being held up or will be held up uh, uh, and hopefully not allowed to go into effect. But we're talking with two experts today, uh, Gina Green, the Chief Strategy Officer at Bend the Arc, and Katie Mertza, uh, Advocacy Coordinator for the Dilly Pro Bono Project. Uh, thank you both for coming back with us. Thanks for having us back. Thank Absolutely. You. So I... Uh, Gina, we in the in the first segment of the show we talked a bit about uh, just the the rise of white nationalism in this country um, and how that's reflected both in sort of uh, one-off actions as well as through official policy uh, like this yeah. Flores rule um, or the rule that would supersede the Flores settlement uh, and override the protections within it. Could we just talk a little bit about about from your perspective what you see as fueling this rise? There's no question that our president um, and all of his enablers in the administration and in Congress um, are at the heart of this rise in both white nationalism as well as anti-Semitism. It is hard to imagine a scenario that we would be in this position without Trump's position um, in the White House. I think one of the things that's really challenging in this particular moment in some ways is kind of the language and the terminology that we're using right we throw around these terms white supremacy and white nationalism and i'd like to take a just a quick step back and define um what i think those terms should be defined as so that people have a starting point Uh, so we've got white supremacy on the one side something that america is familiar with for hundreds of years that's an ideology that means that white people are superior to people of color as a race and that's that there's white nationalism, which is actually a movement that came about and came into prominence along the fringes of American culture in the aftermath, if you will, of the civil rights movement, because there was this question that um, white supremacists had. How is it possible that these black people were able to achieve rights? They're voting. They've got a Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. How did they do that? Well, they actually had to come up with an um, a response to that, which is to explain white nationalism. And this is where we get into like the definition of white nationalism, exactly what it means. Because, and this is where Ben the Arc Jewish Action actually comes into um, really understanding and being impacted by this movement of white nationalism that we've seen come to the, the forefront. And that is because their, their rationale was that Jews, were the hidden controlling power behind the civil rights movement. There was no black agency. There was no black ability to actually achieve change and achieve power on their own. There had to be Jews who were pulling these strings. And this is why when we see these anti-Semitic tropes trot out that do exactly that, that blame and scapegoat the Jews, it's hearkening back to to the foundational belief of white nationalism. And ultimately what white nationalism wants is a nation where people like me, who are both black and Jewish, aren't here, where Latinx people aren't here, where immigrants aren't here, where they've created this all-white ethnostate, and seeing our president actually put these movement um, goals in, in view and actually put white nationalism in center, in front, in front stage, and in the, like, out there for um, policy and practice and what this country is now becoming and doing is really unsettling. And part of the reason why the Jewish community is really um, in this fight and up in arms about what we're seeing taking place. 
Thank you. Thanks for taking that step back with us and, and breaking down those terms. And it it strikes me that uh, as you talk about the, the foundations of white nationalism coming on the heels of uh, the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, we're talking about a movement that um, is all of 55 years old, 54 years old. Um, we're not talking about something from the from the ancient history books. Uh, even, frankly, this, this nation's history books are not ancient history books. Can we put that into perspective for a second? But we're not even talking about something from the 1800s or the 1700s. We're talking about something from the mid-1900s uh, right. in terms of foundational... Uh, roots of, of, of what is a very racist uh, movement in this country. Absolutely. And I think w- and what we have seen is that President Trump has moved that ideology from the fringes to the mainstream. And we're now seeing an, an administration that has white nationalists in it. We see members of Congress and state legislators who are actively aligning themselves with white nationalism and other white nationalists, and we've seen evidence of them being in our armed forces and in our law enforcement. And that is highly problematic. We are now seeing the movement of a movement (laughs) to from sort of the fringes of society to not just mainstream, but in our government as well, which is endangering all of our lives every day. Yeah, no, it's it's terrifying, for lack of a better word. Um, and it's something that uh, needs to be addressed, needs to be rooted out in the fact that there's a president of the United States who is bringing that into the mainstream, and not just bringing it into the mainstream, but bringing it into policy. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We've And it's not, it's not new that we would have racist policies in this country. We've had it since the inception of the nation. Um, but to see it with this resurgence and, within, and in the broader context of wanting a white ethno state, as you as you described, um, and particularly alarming to see members of Congress and, and uh, senators uh, and, and the Senate Majority Leader in particular and others uh, either idly standing by or um, proactively advocating for the continued uh, uh, ascent of this president and his policies uh, sort of either in disregard of or in support of this idea of white nationalism. So I, I you know, it's it's a backdrop that is alarming, that should be alarming, um, and grateful for the work that you and others are doing, Gina, uh, within the community to, to stand up and say, we've seen this story before, we will not sit idly by while it's written uh, yet again, and really taking action here to to stand up. And so that, that sort of brings us to thinking about what should be, right? We, we've we talked quite a bit about what is. Uh, we know that what is is wildly out of step with progressive values. We know that what is currently is wildly out of step with young people's values. We know that what is uh, currently should be out of step, frankly, with any with anybody's values and morals, regardless of political beliefs. Um, but what should be? Um, Katie, when you think about um, and, and when your organization and, and the project you're working with um, thinks through what the goals are, what types of policies do you advocate for and should we be advocating for in this in this regard? Yeah, in addition to the physical and emotional harm that I've already discussed, um, family detention is completely unnecessary. The government can and does every day use its discretion to release 
some families from the border instead of sending them to these ICE detention centers. Um, and so we believe that families should be released from the border um, to wait for their fair day in court outside of detention. Um, it Detention is very expensive. It costs $319 per person per night, and it's preventing people from um, accessing their right to seek asylum because they often don't have access to lawyers, to the documents that they need, um, to um, phone calls that they need to consult with a witness who has more information about their case. And these are families who have no other choice. No one makes the journey with a three-year-old unless they believe that their child's life is in danger back home. Um, this is a very dangerous, difficult journey. Um, and Dili is such a remote location that um, only because we have volunteers traveling to Dili every week are we able to provide legal services just for this first step in the process for people to get through their credible fear interview. Um, and if families start to be detained for longer, um, there will be much larger issues with access to attorneys. So families should be released um, directly from the border and, and the Flores settlement um, should remain in place. Yeah, and I and I've seen some data out there. Don't don't quote me on this, uh, but I've seen some data out there that is largely in line with data around. Uh, well, I'll, I won't make that comparison, but some data out there that says, you know, upwards of 90% of people, I think it was like 95, 96, show up for their court dates um, when a court date is is given to to come back for that next immigration proceeding. There's no need, as you said, to hold anybody, um, particularly families, but largely anybody. Uh, in detention facilities pending the outcome of an asylum case or any other type of immigration proceeding. That's correct. People, These are people who are coming wanting to seek asylum, wanting to go through their legal process. And um, the small number of people who do miss court, it's usually because they were not provided proper notice. They're trying to um, go to court, but they received notice after their court date or with an incorrect date or no date on the paperwork. Um, and there are much more affordable alternatives that the government can use if they do want to monitor people's cases. Um, there was the Family Case Management Program, which was ended by the Trump administration, um, that had a 99% compliance rate with um, ICE appointments and court hearings. Yeah, and and I would I would just add I think we we talk a lot about how asylum and applying for asylum is a is a legal. Um, uh, proceeding here and, and that it is not illegal to apply for asylum and I think that's an important point to make and also in the next breath I think it's an important point to make that no children and no families and no adults should be treated uh, without dignity in an inhumane fashion regardless of whether or not a crime has been committed and especially regardless of whether or not the sole crime is the uh, misdemeanor charge of entering the nation uh, which is in fact a civil proceeding except for a misdemeanor uh, violation that's on the books. But regardless of, of, of whether or not someone's been accused of or convicted of something that's illegal, human dignity should be the right uh, in, a, in a standard of care that reflects human dignity, especially for children, but not limited to children. And that should be, uh, in my mind, without debate. So I, um, Gina, I, I know uh, we, we mentioned uh, the defund hate campaign earlier in the show. Uh, and talk just a little bit, sort of a, a teaser about the work that the Defund Hate campaign is doing around the appropriations for ICE and CBP. Um, on the on the heels of what Katie talked about, that uh, family detention is is just simply not necessary. Can you bring us a little bit more into what the Defund Hate campaign is advocating for, and either where the campaign or or where Ben the Ark 
uh, C's policy should be going in the future? Sure. Defund Hate is a coalition campaign that's demanding that Congress fight back against this administration's cruel anti-immigrant agenda. And by doing that, by cutting the funding of the agencies who are implementing it, ICE and CBP, and holding them accountable. Um, Katie mentioned that there's zero accountability for these agencies, and we're absolutely seeing that bear out in real time every day. What we want to see is the cutting the funding for these agencies and blocking funding for a border wall of any kind. Um, in addition to sort of blocking those funds for these abusive agencies, we got to have real accountability. We can't tolerate the Trump administration raiding other accounts to increase funds for these agencies, making money available for the wall that was not approved and appropriated, and or adding to immigrant detention and other anti-immigrant programs the way that he's trying, currently trying to do uh, with money allocated for disaster relief. We think that Congress should protect our hard-earned tax dollars from being wasted on a deportation and detention machine that, as Katie pointed out and you pointed out, is unnecessary, and in addition, is undignified and does not treat human beings with any dignity. And we also feel like if we're not going to spend money on those things, let's spend the money on the things that do matter, improving schools, roads, and health clinics in immigrant communities across the country, including at our southern border. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and jumping on that point about accountability, uh, when I was in the Obama administration uh, at the Department of Justice, you know, even even things as as sort of seemingly low risk and low level as changing uh, the way grant funds would be used within the same office for the same general purpose, but within a different program, could bring congressional scrutiny. Uh, and now you have uh, an administration that is pulling money from FEMA to give to a deportation machine and the the Congress, the the uh, Republican congressional leadership simply shrugs their shoulders and says, well, or sometimes they say good, which is right. even worse. Right. Uh, so the lack of accountability here and, and using dollars that were designed for one thing for something entirely different that is against the will of the people and against the will of Congress is, is pretty egregious. Uh, and building this border wall, um, which he's declared must now be painted black with spikes, um, is is also um, ridiculous and contributes to this, uh, the inhumanity here. So we've got we've got just over two minutes left. Um, Gina, I want to I want to come to you first, and then Katie, I'm I'm going to ask you to jump in as well. Um, what can people do? What should folks listening right now uh, be calling and asking for from their state reps or from their Congress members, what other activities can people do to get involved and say, uh, not in my name, this is out of step with my values, I'm not on board with this, and not only am I not on board with this, but I want to resist this right now. Yeah, um, we need to continue to work with our immigrant community allies to stop these agencies from enacting uh, the administration's cruel agenda, and we call on Congress to cut their funding. We have been in the streets with our immigrant partners. Um, earlier this month, we held the Tisha B'Av action. Um, Tisha B'Av is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar to demand that our lawmakers shut down these camps and cut the funding of these agencies. That is still the ask. Go to your lawmaker, go to your congressperson, ask them to shut them down and to defund them. It's simple. These are, these are agencies that are um, acting out atrocities on human beings in our name. And so our ask is that we continue to push Congress to resist increasing um, their funding for their atrocities and for the border wall. And if you'd like, you can visit Ben the Ark at us and learn more about our um, 
immigration work and involvement in the defund hate campaign great katie we have uh, just under a minute here anything to add and where can folks find you online yeah, the Dilly Pro Bono Project is a site of the Immigration Justice Campaign, which is a partnership between the American Immigration Council and the American Immigration Lawyers Association to increase access to legal counsel and detention centers around the country. So people can join the campaign at immigrationjustice.us, and those with needed legal or language skills will be matched with volunteer opportunities, but anyone can sign up and participate in our take actions and make their voice heard in support of immigrant rights. Awesome. So I know uh, I know we talked quite a bit about the the new rule out of this administration. I just want to uh, clarify that it, it 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 is not yet going into effect. And uh, our thanks to the lawyers out there who are fighting this in the courts to make sure that it does not go into effect because we know it was it is patently incompatible with the Flores settlement. And I want to thank our two guests, Gina Green, the chief strategy officer at Ben New York, and Katie Mertza, advocacy coordinator for the Dilly Pro Bono Project. We'll be back right after this with the news. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover, the Wesley Marshall Show. We are now joined by Bob Nay. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining us to, to share a bit about what's happening in the news today. Um, so I, I think the lead story here, or, or one of the, I shouldn't say the lead story because, gosh, there's no lead. Um, but one of, one of the stories that we're hearing out there today is around the Harvard freshman who arrived only to be turned around and sent back home uh, out of the country. Can you tell us, can you tell us what's going on here? Brent, this is a very sad, troubling story. Ishmael Ajoui came to, was on his way to Harvard, approved to Harvard, and as he arrived from Lebanon, the Customs and Border Protection uh, ended up detaining him, asking him questions, and because he had um, some offensive things, not that he posted, but that friends of his on Facebook posted that were contrary to some of, quote, interests of the United States, because they always do this, Brent, where they won't really tell you what it's about. Uh, they turned him around and sent him back. I mean, this is destroying the guy's life. There is no terrorism here. And I also will tell you, I, I, I've been working on this for a while, but I have um, factual knowledge and proof that they have done this in India. They have uh, done it in the Philippines. They are getting students who are approved, and they're just turning them around. This is this is the White House's way of conducting immigration without changing the law. And and who's making this decision? It's not going to a judge. It's just a it's a border agent who's saying, oh, nope, go home because someone on your friends list said something on Facebook. Yes, it's the border agent who, even though everything was approved, this young man was approved for Harvard of all places. Uh, you know, and all the expense they went to, and somebody just decided that, well, your friends have said some things we don't like. And you know what's the worst part, Brent? Uh, this is, there's no freedom of speech. Uh, uh, they don't even have to tell why. They don't even have to tell why they've done this. Yeah. So, you know, somebody in Congress really needs to find out, because I, I think that the orders are there, Brent, from this administration, through embassies around the world, clamp it down, keep them all out. There's less students coming here than ever before, I think, in our modern history. So, Bob, we've got just about 30 seconds left here. That segue to Facebook. Uh, Facebook is sharpening its, its, its restrictions on political ads. Can you tell us what's going on? Well, it is. What it's going to do for political ads, you'll have to have a EIN, which is, you know, a, a tax number. You have to have social security numbers. You have to have various forms of proof if you want to buy the political ads. I think it's their attempt to 
try to see at least that foreign money, like, you know, uh, happened with Russia, et cetera, doesn't happen again. So this is a little bit stricter. If you want to do it, you've got to have either, you know, your nonprofit number or your tax ID number, something to prove who you are. Got it. Thanks. That was Bob Nay with Talk Media News, and this has been the Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks, everybody. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.